John chapter 4. We've spent several weeks in the third chapter, looked at a lengthy conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus. We're going to skip over to the fourth chapter to a lesser known conversation, though not insignificant by any means. And this is the conversation that Jesus has with a certain nobleman. So I'm looking in verses 46 down through verse 54. The first half of the fourth chapter deals with Jesus and the Samaritan woman at the well. And then the ensuing what we could call awakening amongst the Samaritans based upon what Jesus had revealed to her. In verse 39, you see that many of the Samaritans of that city believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified. But then also in verse 42, the Samaritans say, Now we believe, not because of what you said, for we ourselves have heard him, and we know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. So what a blessing it is to have both the testimony of someone who has experienced Christ like this woman at the well, but then have, the, have your own ears opened to the word of Christ, recognizing, believing that he is indeed the Savior of the world. So what we're going to look at this morning in verses 46 through 54 I want you to think of all that Jesus made known to Nicodemus. We, we spent five weeks going through that great conversation and the truth that Jesus revealed to Nicodemus. I want you to see, before I read, that Jesus says directly to this nobleman six words. The first thing that you see Jesus saying in verse 48 is spoken in the hearing of all. And the New King James at least helps us there when it says, unless you people see signs. Jesus says directly to this certain man only six words, or at least they're interpreted that way for us in our English Bibles. And these six words changed his life. So whether by many or by few... The Lord Jesus changes the lives of those that come into contact with him. I want you to read, follow along as I read this beginning in verse 46. Jesus came again to Cana of Galilee where he had made the water wine. And there was a certain nobleman whose son was sick at Capernaum. When he heard that Jesus had come out of Judea into Galilee, he went to him and implored him to come down and heal his son. For he was at the point of death. Then Jesus said to him, Unless you people see signs and wonders, you will by no means believe. Then the nobleman said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, Go your way. Your son lives. So the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him, and he went his way. And as he was now going down, his servants met him and told him, saying, Your son lives. Then he inquired of them the hour when he got better. And they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. So the father knew that it was at the same hour in which Jesus said to him, your son lives. And he himself believed and his whole household. 
This again is the second sign Jesus did when he came out of Judea into Galilee. Would you pray with me? Father, we've come and are now giving attention to your word. We have it open. Lord, we desire that you speak to us from it. Lord, we've had it read in our hearing and we've profited from it. We pray that you would give us ears to hear it to its greatest degree. Lord, we're thankful for what you made known to this man and what he believed about you. Lord, we are here believing the same. And we pray that you would give this faith to all this morning. We pray that you would save those among us which are outside of Christ, that you would edify and build up the saints for your own glory. May we all leave with the confident faith that this certain man had in Christ. We pray and ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. So I want to go through this and divide it into four parts. The first, just looking and dealing with the few details we are given about this certain nobleman and his son. The second, the way Jesus initially responds to him in verse 48. And then look at what he does for both the father and the son in this account. This is unique to the Gospel of John. Though other Gospels, some think, allude to this story, the actual details of it we only find here. So first let's look at this certain nobleman and his sick son. We aren't given many details about either of them. You may have in your Bible a notation that substitutes or gives you an alternate reading for nobleman as a royal official. This man most likely served in the courts of Herod. He would have most likely himself been a Jew. Being a royal official, he would have been a man of means. He would have been wealthy himself and yet most likely had all of the king's court at his disposal. And by that, I mean the king's doctors. And probably, though we aren't told this specifically in the text, all of those means had been exhausted. Perhaps the physicians and the greatest of the physicians available to Herod himself had seen this sick son of this nobleman. And no remedy could be found. They could do nothing to intervene in his condition. But yet this man knew enough. He knew enough of Jesus that he approaches him. We're given the details of the logistics. Jesus is in Cana of Galilee, which the detail we're reminded of is where he performed his first miracle or sign of turning the water into wine. This certain man was from Capernaum, which if you look in a map in the back of your Bible, you'll notice that that distance is not a great distance, but in the day and time, it represented about a, a day's journey. It was about 16 miles. So this man had made the journey. He came to Christ, which would in itself be an act of humility for such a great man well-respected, highly thought of, 
various servants under him. We see at the end of this that his servants are the ones coming to him. But he has exhausted all resources. He has heard of Jesus. Perhaps he was present at the wedding. We don't know. But nonetheless, the news concerning Jesus had reached his ears and he comes to Christ begging for his son's life. Three things to know about him. More specifically, what he knew about Jesus. There is something that he knows, something that he questions, and something that he is just flat wrong about. So let's look first at what he knew. He knew that Jesus was able to make right what was wrong. Some people have called this the first rung of faith's ladder. We're going to watch this man through his interaction with Jesus climb the ladder of faith, so to speak. But this is the first, the elementary aspect of it. He knew that Jesus was able to make right what was wrong. And he makes the journey and he comes and he finds Jesus. He approaches him. But this is what he questions, though it isn't explicit in the text. He questions whether or not Jesus will be willing to do what he is able to do. And we see that because he is begging Jesus. He went to him and implored him to come down and heal his son. He is literally begging. This is a strong verb. And any picture you get in your mind would be fitting. We aren't told that he fell down before Jesus, but perhaps he did. We aren't told that he asked Jesus with tears, but perhaps he did. All of those would speak to the strength of this word imploring or begging Jesus. He knew Jesus was able. He wasn't sure if Jesus was willing. But here is something that he was just wrong about. He assumed that Jesus must be present to make right what was wrong. He assumed that Jesus would have to follow him the 16 miles back to Capernaum if he were to heal his son. The few details that we have about his son, and the words are so generic here that really they don't speak to his age. He could have been an infant. He could have been a teenager. He could have been in his 20s. We just don't know. The word would apply to all of those. What we do know about him is that he was near the point of death. Everything else having been exhausted for his treatment. Apparently he has a, a fever because the detail is later that the fever has left him. This is all we know about him. Other than the fact that he is 16 miles away from Jesus. In that day and time represented a great journey. About a day's journey. I wonder if any of you have someone close in your life, a son, a daughter, a sibling, a parent, who figuratively it seems like they are 16 miles away from Jesus. That the distance is just too great to overcome in a short period of time. Here, that's the setting. 
And Jesus' interaction with this man admittedly is not much. And initially, it seems to be pretty stern with a word of rebuke. But before we get into that, I want you to, to notice with me certain what J.C. Ryle calls life lessons about this interaction with Jesus and this man. Before we move on, I want to give you those, those four what he calls life lessons. Reminders for us. We all need to hear these and be reminded of these very often. First, the rich are afflicted as well as the poor. This is a rich man's son who is near the point of death. Sickness, affliction of various types, come to all. The rich are not immune. Certainly the poor are not immune. The second thing that J.C. Ryle brings out here is that sickness and death come to the young as well as to the old. Regardless of this son's age, he would have been a relatively young person. Sickness has found him. and Death is very near. So often the default in our, in our mind is to think that death is only something that happens to the old. It's the natural end of mankind after having lived a long, fruitful life. That's not always true, is it? Some of us have been very close to the exact opposite of that happening. Death, sickness, comes to the young as well as to the old. That's why it's imperative. And that's why the scriptures so often point to the fact that young people come to Christ. Remember now your creator when? In the days of your youth, before all of these hard things begin, begin to come. Ecclesiastes chapter 12. So the first two lessons that we are reminded of, the rich are afflicted just like the poor. Sickness and death come to the young as well as the old. The third, afflictions often very often, greatly benefit the soul. Physical affliction very often greatly benefits the soul. Though we would rarely choose it for ourselves given opportunity, the biblical record bears out over and over again, affliction is very often used by God for our very great good. That's why David, the king, could say this, it has been good for me that I have been afflicted. How so? Was the experience of it good for you? Not necessarily, but the outcome. My being cast in utter dependence upon God again has proven in the end to be extremely beneficial for me. And we, we know afflictions come to us in all different kinds of ways. It's not just sickness. They find us. The Lord allows them. The fourth lesson from J.C. Ryle here is Christ's word is as good as his presence. 
Christ's word is as good as his presence. Now let's, let's stop here and make application of that. Christ's word here in this place as we are reading it and preaching it is as good as his presence. But then aren't we reminded that he is here where his people have gathered. He's inhabiting the praises of his people. Where two or three are gathered, there I am in your midst. And so we have the great and double blessing, if we can call it that, of having both the word and the person of Christ with us. But here, for the sake of this interaction with this certain man, we're reminded that the word of Christ is as good as the presence of Christ and so we've got the sage, the stage fairly set for us. We know a few things about this man. He's, he's a man of prominence. He's a man straight out of Herod's court. He's come in humility to Jesus. He's traveled some distance. He's right about that Jesus can help. He's not so sure if Jesus is willing. And he's wrong that Jesus must be present where his son is. But let's look at how Jesus gives him an answer or how Jesus responds to him. Now, keep in mind, this father is distraught. This father is at the end of his rope. He doesn't know where else to turn to find help for his son. He has done what any of us as fathers would do. We would exhaust every means available to us. Now he's at the end of all of that. He's finally at the right place. He's finally come to where he can receive grace and help in his time of need. So when he hears that Jesus had made his way to Judea, he, he comes, makes the journey, begs Jesus to come down and heal his son, who is at the point of death. And in verse 48, Jesus gently rebukes him. By saying, unless you people see signs and wonders, you will by no means believe. How can we not think of Thomas? Thomas was the very picture of what Jesus is speaking to here. Unless you see, Thomas said, unless I am able to feel, unless I am able to place my, my fingers in, the pierced, in his pierced hands, and I will not believe. This man embodies that same spirit of Thomas. And really, it's the exact opposite of the Samaritans in verse 42. I think that's the contrast that's being made. The Samaritans in verse 42, the last latter part of the verse said, We ourselves have heard and we know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. No longer were they needing the, quote, sign or wonder of what Jesus had said to the woman. They heard Jesus speak himself, and they had believed it unto the saving of their soul. Some of you recognize the name of the early church father, John Chrysostom. Here is how he interprets this rebuke of Jesus. He says, Christ's meaning here is, that this man does not yet have the right kind of faith. He still, he still feels toward Christ that he is only a prophet. That he can receive something temporal from his hand. 
Jesus rebukes the state of mind with which the nobleman had come to him. And he seeks to draw him further along. And that's what happens. Notice verse 49. Again, whatever kind of emotion, whatever kind of despair we read this verse with would be fitting. Verse 49, he says to Jesus, Sir, come down before my child dies. It's interesting here the way this verse has been interpreted for us. The word sir is also in the original language the word that the very vast majority of the time is translated as Lord. So it's just as easily and fitting and right to read the verse, Lord, come down before my child dies. Can you, can you sense the urgency? This man really doesn't even know if his child may have already passed. He's just wanting Jesus to come. Come before my child dies. And then the six words that Jesus says to him. Jesus said, go your way. Your son lives. And I want you to see in these six words, two things simultaneously happen. According to the rest of this account, life is restored and given to the physical body of the son. Your son lives. But something else is happening here. Life in its fullest and utmost sense has been given to the father's soul. What does he do? The man believed the word that Jesus spoke and went his way. This man that has traveled this distance with such, a, with such an anxiousness, with such concern, with such grief, which has driven him to make this journey to Jesus, before Jesus, begging Jesus, Jesus then rebukes him gently and then tells him, go your way, your son lives. In those words, he has climbed the next rung of the ladder, so to speak, faith's ladder. He's taken Jesus at his word, and he went his way. Moments before, filled with anxiety and distress, now he turns peacefully and heads home. He's leaving all with Jesus. That's what faith does. Faith leaves all in the capable willing hands of Jesus. He's no longer troubled. He's no longer despairing. Christ's word is good enough for him. Something has happened here in these words. Perhaps we can, we can go back to the third chapter. Perhaps we could make the application, the wind of the spirit has swept over his soul. 
And what once just a few moments earlier was not there has now been imparted by the Spirit of God. Making him both willing and able to put this measure of trust in Christ. Through simple faith and belief that what Jesus said was sufficient. But that's not the end of the story. Even though he believes, turns himself toward home, his servants met him and told him. Notice all they do is repeat exactly what Jesus had told him. Jesus says, go your way, your son lives. The servants meet him on the road and they are saying, crying out, your son lives. He lives. When you left, he was very near death. In fact, we thought he was going to die. But now he's alive. His health has been restored. So he inquires of them. Verse 52, he inquires of them the hour when he got better. He wants to know. He's trying to pinpoint the time when the sun got better. And so they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. So in the Jewish calendar, the Jewish clock, this would have been one o'clock in the afternoon. The sixth hour being noon. One more the seventh hour. And what does the father know? The, the equation in his own mind, the father knew that it was at the same hour in which Jesus said to him, your son lives. And he himself believed. What did he believe? Go back up to verse 42. The Samaritan said, we know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. He, be he himself believed along with his whole household. This is the second sign Jesus did when he came from Judea into Galilee. He's made it all the way to the top rung of the ladder, hasn't he? What initially was right in his mind that Jesus was able, he's now come to firmly believe what he once questioned was Jesus willing. That's all been cleared up and moved out of the way because it's very obvious that, yes, Jesus was willing. And then even the thing that he was just flat wrong about, that Jesus had to be present where his son was, even that has been removed. All Jesus had to do was speak the word, your son lives. And at that moment, Whatever was ailing him got up and left. The important part of this, the important part of this in verse 52 and 3 is the father's reaction. And notice the simplicity with which it's stated. And he himself believed. And his whole household. Now he had his faith strengthened. He knew Christ as the Savior of the world. 
Jesus, though he rebuked him for wanting a sign, gave him a sign. And yet he has all of his household coming to believe along with him. So that's the short of the story. It moves fairly quickly. A man approaches Christ. His son is sick, needs help, begs for help. Jesus gives help. The man returns home. What Jesus had said has come to pass. The boy is alive. Now the father is fully alive as well spiritually. Apparently the son also. If we take the 53rd verse at face value, he himself believed and his whole household became believers. So let's make some application of this story if we can. The first thing that I, I want you to see here, and this has been helpful for me to be reminded of, that it is natural for a parent to plead with Christ for their children. There is not a stronger love than that of parent to child. To see how the Lord has blessed you and what the Lord has given you this is the natural affection that itself is a gift of God. But let's take that a step further. We all want our children to be in good health. And when they're not, it's a cause for great distress, right? Some of the most despairing times as a parent is when your children are, are sick with some type of grave illness and you simply can't do anything about it. I don't know if you've been in that situation or not. Some of you have. It's the most helpless feeling in the world. But yet here we see this man, what does he do? That despair drives him to the foot of Jesus. And there he begs. And Jesus is merciful. He's gracious to him. But let's not fall prey to think that this will always be the outcome, because it's not. The presence of sin in the world, the effects of sin in the world, this is not always the outcome. But if we raise this to a spiritual plane... And we, and we remove it from the physical sphere for just a moment. Then we realize a lost son or daughter, regardless of what type of physical health that they are enjoying, is very near the point of eternal death at all times. That being the case, why would we ever stop pleading with Jesus for the spiritual life of our children. That recognition should drive us just as this man to make the journey. And this journey is not, not hard for us. It's not compassed by traveling long distance down a dirt road. It's simply humbling ourselves before God and begging and imploring that he would help my son, help 
my daughter. Raise them up to newness of life. Let us not be like this man at the beginning, knowing Jesus is able, but questioning if he's willing. Let's affirm both. Jesus is able and he is willing. All of these accounts of Jesus and these individuals that he is dealing with, do we not see in all of them the compassion of Christ, the willingness to meet the need, coupled with certainly the ability to meet the need? So here is what we learn from this at least on a practical level. Plead with Jesus for your children. Second, in the economy of God, in God's great scheme, a father holds great sway over the spiritual life of his children. Let us be quick to say there are no guarantees, yet there are great promises. There is no foolproof way, but yet there is great instruction in which we should strive to be obedient. We see that here. He himself believed and his whole household. What a a place of responsibility. We could say authority. What, What a place the Lord has placed a father in. Great responsibility yet greatly helped. If we don't temper this with grace and mercy, we will place upon ourselves a burden that we just simply cannot bear. And what I mean by that is even though these things are normative in the scriptures, I've already said, they are not guaranteed. And fathers, when you do those things which the Lord has called you to do, when you raise your children in the fear and nurture and admonition of the Lord, when you plead with Christ for them, and yet they are still in a place where you would not like to see them, what do you do? You keep pleading. You keep coming before Jesus and you keep begging. Notice again, verse 49. Sir, Lord, come down before my child dies. Don't let them perish. Don't let him die. And Jesus did just that. So we we come away from this, and though we might ask, where's the gospel in this? Where is you know, the great revelation. Where is all the things that Jesus told Nicodemus? Where, is the, where are the things that he made known to the Samaritan woman at the well? That great conversation that he has with her, which we may look at in time. Well, it's all boiled down into this. Go your way. Your son lives. The Savior standing before him, making this bold declaration. Would he believe it or would he not? Would he continue to question and doubt? He doesn't. He turns and he heads home. And all is well.
The gospel of Jesus Christ is multifaceted. Salvation comes in myriads of different ways. We can't boil it down and say that it's always going to look the same, happen the same, based upon the same knowledge, based upon the same words, all of these types of things. But we can say this, Christ is a great Savior. And he raises men and women up out of despair. This sick son of this nobleman, representative of the sickness, the deadness of the soul of man. And yet how easy was it for Jesus to raise and restore? So easy. So we do not despair. We keep pleading. And above all, we believe the message of the gospel. Christ in my place absorbing the wrath of God for me, becoming sin himself, being considered sin by his holy and righteous Father, so that by believing in his name, believing in what he has done for me, I may go free. Have you believed this gospel? Have you been raised up to walk in newness of life? Have you experienced what this man experienced, having his despair and grief turned to joy? What, what the prophet would call beauty for ashes. That's what this man received. In a moment, all was made right. That's the power, that's the ability, that's the willingness of Jesus. We just have to come to him believing, trusting. Just what this man did. He himself believed. Jesus said in another conversation later in this same gospel in the 14th chapter, verses that we know well, This is where he makes the declaration. When Thomas again says, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? What does Jesus say to him? Thomas, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The exclusivity of Jesus. You will find salvation in nothing else. We looked this morning at the parable of the rich fool. He had everything, but yet he really had nothing. He was rich in, in the world's eyes, but not rich toward God. And in telling that parable, Jesus said of him, you fool, you fool, this very night your soul will be required of you. And what, is, what are all of these earthly possessions going to profit you then? Nothing. Nothing at all. If you and I are to, to be saved, if we're to be converted, if we're to be redeemed, then any other word you want to, to rightly put there 
It will be through coming to Christ, believing upon Him, having His righteousness imputed to us by faith, and then we will be rich in faith and rich toward God. May He make it so in all of our hearts. Let's pray. Father, we come to You. We trust that You will accomplish this work in us that you will do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Lord, we can relate so much to this father pleading for his son's life and you granted it, not only raising him up, but being part of that household, professing faith in Christ himself. So, Lord, we pray and we plead for the souls of our children, for the souls of our siblings and parents. Lord, correct all of our thinking. Help us to know that, yes, you are indeed able. Yes, you're willing. And that your word is sufficient. So, Father, save those that are outside of Christ, we pray. We ask you to do it in such a way that you receive all the praise and the honor and the glory for it. We ask it in faith. In the name of your Son, amen.